Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the New Books and Irish Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Bridget English, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, I'm talking to Barry Houlihan, who's the author of the brilliant new book, Theater and Archival Memory, Irish Drama and Marginalized Histories, 1951 to 1977, which examines Irish drama production and reception from the 1950s onwards, drawing on newly released and digitized archival records to argue for an inclusive historiography that reflects the ways that marginalized performance histories have impacted modern Irish theater. Welcome, Barry. Hi, Bridget, and good to talk to you. Yes, it's great to have you here today. Um, So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to this book project on theatre and archival memory? Yeah, sure. So, um, so my, my main role here at NUI Galway is the archivist here and managing the theatre archives, which are so the biggest cohort of collections held by the university. And um, uh, we, we work with our colleagues at the O'Donoghue Centre for Drama, Theatre and Performance, where our students and, and academic colleagues in drama are based. So we work very closely with them. I teach in the centre, teach theatre history and archives, and partner a lot with our staff and students on the collections that we do bring to the university. And uh, in terms of the ethos of that process, we're an all-island archive. We have collections from the Lyric Theatre in Belfast through to the Abbey Theatre in Dublin, the Gate Theatre in Dublin, to the Druid Theatre Company here in Galway, and a host of individual collections as well. People like Thomas Kilroy, of course, the playwright, and other really significant people across the 20th century of Irish drama from actors like Siobhan McKenna um, to actors like, again, like Arthur Shields. So it's a very broad collection, very broad archive. And it was it was through that process of sifting through all these records, you know, physically and digitally, of, of which there are millions. Um, there, there is that much material here across all these various collections that I was fascinated by the lesser known stories of Irish drama, Um, particularly in the latter half of the 20th century. And that maybe reflected my own background as a historian, anyway, of modern Ireland and a social 
interested in the social histories of Ireland and the social and cultural histories and where those two intersected. Um, so for me, the, the book and writing that book, Theatre and Archival Memory, was about investigating how memory is recorded in the first place and who, 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 who was allowed to be entered to, to, to that privileged position of the archive in itself, be it in a university archive or in a national archive. You know, the archives are powerful spaces in terms of what they do remember and then also what is chosen to not be remembered. So there's a lot of power in those dynamics of memory in Irish culture. Um, be those neglected voices, immigrant voices or voices of travellers or uh, voices of women uh, in society or work by women playwrights, as the book collects a lot of these neglected stories uh, anyway. So it was it was the culmination of a lot of that work to sift through all those records and see could I, you know, reclaim or recover some of these neglected theatre histories, which are very much important to Ireland's broader cultural history anyway, um, as much as it is important to the, the history of the theatre. Great. Yeah, I think that's that's one thing that makes this book so interesting is the way that you use the archive and uh, draw in all these previously like lesser known or previously maybe unheard of uh, plays. So early in the book, you've referenced the present absence that the archive manifests. Um, can you say a little bit more about what you mean by the term and, and maybe how this allows you uh, to interrogate some of these unpublished dramas? Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's something. If you're doing archival work, you're you're obviously working on the records in front of you, and they they tell their own story. They, I suppose the archive can only tell what's included in it, and you know, in some ways, that that process of doing archival labor and archival research is, you know, I often describe it as like trying to put together or put back together the biggest jigsaw you can imagine without having that picture on the box to work off of. It's, you don't know what the end product is or, you know, the, the journey to getting there, you, you, you fit some stories together, you're fitting some pieces together and sometimes they line up and sometimes they don't. And the, those gaps are just simply part of the process. But I was interested in why those gaps were, were created in the first place. Again, did we consciously or unconsciously neglect that particular writer's work or that theater's work um, or the theme of the work? Or is that why they're not collected in a wider theater history? Um, uh, and see, could I, again, trying to uncover, you know, work that went beyond the story of Irish theater, which is, you know, the, the story of largely white male playwrights, you know, the Brian Friels and the Tom Murphy's, and that's with the greatest respect to these, these obviously great playwrights, but I was still interested in what wasn't being recorded you know, what was happening at the fringe venues that were really cropping up all over Dublin in the 1940s, 1950s. There was a really, you know, I wouldn't say maybe explosion in new creative work is too strong a word, but there's definitely, a, an ex, you know, a new generation of young Irish artists and young Irish theatre makers of, at independent companies, not just part of the abbeys or the gates or, or those major established theatres um, who were doing work they wanted to do and didn't have to... Um, maybe answer to a lot of the funding bodies or a lot of the other board of directors, which can be quite conservative in their outlooks. Um, so they were quite a, a remarkable generation of, of artists that emerged at that time. Um, so it was, it was, I suppose, try, first of all, maybe to do something that's, you know, difficult to do is identify the gaps in the first place, because if something isn't there, what are you looking for? Um, but, you know, that the archival work in some ways filled a lot of those gaps for me. A lot of the collections we acquired we went out and targeted, we looked for and, and worked with families and estates and donors. Other times it was pure luck. Uh, an archive would drop into your on, into your lap by a generous donor who would say, you know, we're clearing out an attic and my mother's or grandfather's papers are here. Are you interested in them? 
So it was a great process of serendipity. Or we were, we were fortunate to have some of those lucky incidents as well. But yeah, it was a real labor over a number of years in collaboration with a great number of people here on campus to uh, to bring these archives together. And the book is just the fruits of that labor, really, from what I was trying to do. Great. Yeah, it's so interesting that there's there, there's so many plays that people don't know about because, like you said, they're produced in, in fringe venues that are kind of outside the official narrative. And I think you've referenced that a, like a lot of these plays had to do with maybe more stigmatized issues like mental illness, abuse, contraception, sexuality, and things like that. So first of all, maybe what, what are some, do you have any, um, I suppose, theories about why these things weren't, these plays weren't produced um, in more uh, well-known venues? Was it, was it just issues of funding? Was it more censorship issues? Yeah. And maybe some other challenges that you faced um, in, I mean, like you said, some of it was serendipity with with um, people bringing some of these archives to you or or offering them to you. But were there any other difficulties, like in terms of what you wanted to include, or you know, maybe material that was sensitive to families, things like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's a really great thing to th- to a great question to think about because that's at the heart of it all. Really, is um, you know, how do we know? It, it, it's it's kind of a chicken and an egg. Do we was I interested in a play that, that that looks like it might have been a victim of censorship? But if it is, then how do we find anything about it? Because so many of these plays, if not all of them, were unpublished. And that's, you know, a big barrier. And again, that there's wider issues around all these questions of censorship anyway. I mean, censorship of the theatre is very different to censorship of a book. I mean, a book is, is published and the reading of those books is a very private act. You know, you do it at home or, you you know, theatre going is such a public thing and I talk about this in the book that even the act of theatre going is often a political act and that it makes a statement about the type of work you're going to see or the type of theatre you go to Um, is it a national theatre is it a French theatre is it work by um, you know an Irish male playwright or is it work by um, you know a woman playwright by a queer playwright you know all these questions all come into play Um, publication is a huge thing as well you know, the number of, of women published pales massively compared to the numbers of, of male playwrights published. Um, and again, reasons of, of sexism at play there, um, as well as other forms of, of censorship. Um, and maybe one example there, which I deal in a chapter in the book about the state and the family or staging the family in the state was a play by Carolyn Swift in 1951 um, called The Millstone. And this was a play about the illegal or illegal adoption of children and the shame and stigma and public morality or the impossible standard of public morality imposed upon women in Ireland at the time. Uh, I mean, for many, Carolyn Swift might be most commonly known as as a co-founder of of the Pike Theatre with Alan Simpson. And um, the Pike Theatre was established in 1953. And and that's very well accounted for in in, in all sorts of really important books on Irish theatre about what that theatre established for, you know, internationally Irish theatre by bringing Beckett into Ireland for the first time, by bringing Brendan Behan's Queer Fellow onto the stage and a whole range of other international works. And then, of course, there was the censorship of the Rose Tattoo in 1957 in the first Dublin Theatre Festival. So that's all the, the kind of story of the Pike. But before the Pike Theatre, and it's in its bricks and mortar phase, at least in Herbert Lane in Dublin, was the Pike Theatre Company, which was a small nomadic theatre company based in Dunleary, you know, a, a suburb in, in, in South County Dublin. 
And the first play that the Pike Theatre Company ever did was by Carolyn Swift. And that was a play, The Millstone, about the illegal adoption of children. And, you know, to put that on at the time was a really brave act. So in 1952, the adoption, um, the Irish Adoption Act was passed. And the that piece of legislation really cemented in, in legislation, you know, so much of what would follow in terms of the institutionalization of women, the, the forced adoption of children for decades to come after that um, in, in all its guises from uh, mother and baby homes to Magdalene laundries. And of course, the, that power of, of church and state in the country, um, very much hand in glove there. So really, as that act has been drafted and, and it's, as it's been debated in the Dáil, the Irish Parliament, Carolyn Swift writes this play about it. Um, and it was dismissed, of course, by the, the media at the time. Um, and even on the play, the play's playbill, it's called A Topical Play. And it's such a neglected piece. And it was so important of how it speaks to uh, uh, the, the Ireland of the time in the early 1950s, how it positioned women, how it positioned the adoptees, the children themselves. And in the play, the character who grows up to be, is, she's a teenager in the play, is, um, is claimed, for want of a better word, by her mother, her biological mother, simply to be domestic labour in, in her own business. Um, and the threat is, is if she doesn't leave her happy adopted household, she, her biological mother will, will publicly shame her as, as an adoptee um, and all the stigma that that brought with it. So really, really strong political, social issues being developed in a really well-crafted play. So it's not just about doing a political piece for the sake of it being, this was a really well-done play. Um, and it's only one, ex- one of the many examples that came through when researching the archives in, in the book. Um, I mean, I was so fortunate that Carolyn's daughter, Maureen, um, donated Carolyn's archives to, to Inuit Galway when I was writing the book at that time. And it just brought back so much of these neglected histories back onto the record, you know, back into people's perception and their awareness of, you know, this really important play and an important woman behind it. Wow, that's so interesting. So, for for in terms of the audience members, were, were these plays, you know, reviewed in in the same newspapers, and did they attract similar audiences, or was it more, like you said, kind of a niche audience that were 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 watching these plays? Yeah, I mean, it didn't have a major production history, but it was put on in the town hall in Dunleary, and it was very well reviewed for a first time play, a debut play by a woman playwright at the time. Um, I mean, it was, you know, and again, the, the, the role of the critic in history is so important and in, of the role of criticism. And the critics were uniformly men um, in, in the first instance in all the major national press and media of the day. The Irish Times gave it a pretty positive review. Um, you know, this is a really promising playwright and, you know, interesting theme, undoubtedly political and it's reflective of the present day. Others just completely, you know, didn't even try to mask their open sexism that it was called a tearjerker for women um you know th- th- that kind of thing uh, i know some other headlines said but of course carolyn swift the the playwright herself who was in her late 20s at the time she played the teenage schoolgirl in the play so she was dressed up in a school uniform and there's a lot of really uncomfortable um sexualization of her as a young schoolgirl uh, in the press review so it's quite uncomfortable reading that as well um, i mean some other headlines read um, playwright becomes a schoolgirl on stage, and they give the they give the plaudits to Alan Simpson, who's her husband. Um, I think it's something. Army captain takes time off to direct wife's play. You know that they don't even name Carolyn Swift as the playwright. You know, but but praise her husband simply for directing it. You know, right? You know, it, it, it's it's 
you know, it, it, it's it's not funny, but it's also, you know, comical in how ridiculous they are as as acts of criticism. But that's what goes on the record that, you know, we all search for play reviews in the online newspaper databases and we search for playwrights and plays names. But this is what turns up. And if they're always uniformly negative, you know, are you going to turn and give your attention to, to these plays? So, again, criticism matters an awful lot. Right. Yeah. And it's it's crazy, like you said, how overt it was. And was that the same for most women playwrights? Like, I think you reference works by people like Edna O'Brien and uh, Mary Manning later on. Do you do you see that uniformly around the board in terms of female playwrights? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Especially, I mean, the book cover is roughly, say, 1951, just for that's the year the millstone is, is produced through to roughly 1977, which is Edna O'Brien's play I, I looked at in the book, A Pagan Place. So it kind of it's bookended by those two plays and those two women playwrights. Now, it, obviously, it, it kind of there's a bit of porous, you know, kind of gaps in those years and it bleeds through a little bit from the 40s and into the 1980s. But, I mean, Edna O'Brien suffered pretty much the exact same fate in the 1970s and it's interesting that as we're talking now her new play about Joyce's women is going to be on at the Dublin Theatre Festival at the Abbey this year um, right. but yet in the 1970s um, you know it was it was a pretty intense and, and uh, hostile place for her in terms of the audience and the reception she got uh, so even just before A Pagan Place opened in 77 which is an adaptation of her novel, her own novel of the same name. Um, she had a, an original play on called The Gathering in 1974. So w- w- when it was back to the Abbey in 77, she, in an interview, she talked about, you know, that, that hostile environment. She could almost feel that tense pressure in the air as she walked into the lobby, that the same old eyes and faces were watching her um, and that she wasn't welcome. And she wasn't welcome one, as a woman playwright, and two, she wasn't welcome as a censored woman playwright, you know, going back to her her country girls novel being, being banned in the early 60s, that she was, you know, not only is this a woman playwright coming in here, but this scandalous, you know, novelist who, who was writing about, you know, these 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 issues in the 1960s. Um, so she felt that very strongly uh, by the time A Pagan Place was put on in, the 1970, in 1977. Um, I mean, I, I look beyond the stage as well. So people like Lilia Doolin, who was also appointed artistic director at the Abbey in 1971. I mean, she talked, I was very lucky to be able to interview Lilia for the book. And I mean, she could remember vividly, again, this kind of harsh um, weight of pressure from the board who were all men at the Abbey at the time and the pressure she got. And again, she was essentially forced out uh, in her second year, just before the end of her second year of her, of her um, directorship. Um, and she was really about rejuvenation of the Abbey in terms of craft and of the skills of the actor about trying to bring in new forms of of direction of choreography of voice coaches she brought in all these different new skills to the Abbey for the first time and she found a really hostile environment to change um so that her tenureship ended far shorter than what it should have been um and there's so many uniform experiences across that 30 year period from from Carolyn Swift true to Lilia Doolin and Edna O'Brien and Mary Manning earlier on as well. So, yeah, I mean, it, that's what that's what the archival work can give credence to, is that you do see these, these aren't just patterns, these are evidence, really, of the treatment of, of women in Irish theatre. Right, which is, I think, one of the things that makes uh, your book so unique and important. Um, particularly, uh, like, I think one thing that your book does really well um, near the 
or I think that it's so outward looking in terms of exposing this treatment of women playwrights or marginalized groups. But then also you note um, that there's, this is a quote, there's a significant, significant contribution to be made by archivists and librarians towards the formation of a wider inclusive and socially reflective archive and historiography of Irish drama, one that looks beyond the canon. And then you go on to note that institutions need to be to better strategize the collection and acquisition of dramatic works that's been marginalized from public awareness. So just in terms of thinking about this on a more like institution uh, for librarians and archivists, what are some strategies that they might use for locating these materials? Um, Or because, you know, some of these works aren't part of the public memory or consciousness, are there ethical challenges that archivists or librarians need to reconcile themselves to or, or face in terms of thinking about public versus private memories? Yeah, it's, I mean, for something like, you know, my, my own role as an archivist, you know, that's a very privileged role within a privileged institution at a university in that, you know, there's, there's basically decisions are made about what history is kept and what history isn't, you know, before scholars or historians or, or academics, anyone does research, you know, what, what records are kept at all for people to work on um, and, and, and sift through and study. So when I was saying there that archivists and, and others, maybe librarians or whoever it is, need to be more proactive, you know, it was again, I'm probably checking myself as well and others, you know, are, are, when any collection is acquired by a university, you know, is it is it trophy hunting? Or is this, you know, for a more, you know, specific cultural reason that this archive needs to be preserved? You know, I think, Archives and archivists can be great at, at those choices in terms of, yes, this is an important headline or an important acquisition for an institution. But actually, if we only collect what is on those headlines, what is only the, the accepted canon, then it's a very limited version of cultural history that's preserved. Um, so I was always more interested in, well, who isn't being part of, who isn't welcomed into those institutions? Um, you know, I was struck by uh, the Teresa Devi story, you know, this brilliant Irish playwright and again she suffered her own biases in, in, in Irish cultural history um, but her archive went um, uh, I think so Maynooth University who did a fantastic job cataloging that and making it and digitizing it um, but yet that lived under a bed at her in her house in Waterford for decades after the playwright's death and you know sc- some scholars had access to that over the years but it always went back under the bed and you know this idea of this great woman's playwright her records and her scripts and all her documents her you know the legacy of her creativity going back in a suitcase and being hidden physically back under a bed again was you know uh, a, a, such a strange thing to consider so i was so glad to see that archive go into an institution like like the university of minute um, you know a similar thing happened to me when i was going out to collect an archive of um a, a, an archaeologist professor who was connected to the university and that would have been a, a brilliant acquisition in that field and yet out there at the family's house, I saw um, some Abbey Theatre records sticking out of uh, a shopping bag or a bag in the corner of the room. And when I asked what those were, they said, oh, well, that, that's the records of, of Aunt Mary. And I said, well, who's Aunt Mary? I said, oh, well, that, well that's Mary Rain. And she wrote some plays. And said, oh, are, are those records of interest too? And I was like, yes, of course they are. And I had never read a play by Mary Rain. Um, and I was able to see that she did have plays performed at the Abbey. Uh, I think it was in the 1940s. Um, but she wrote a great deal of other, uh, a great amount of other works. You know, she wrote for magazines at the time in the 1930s and 1940s. She wrote short stories. She wrote radio plays. Um, so on the record, this was on the official record, the Abbey's archive, she had one play produced. 
you know, the archival memory is very different. Mary Rain had this whole other body of work published in, in magazines and short stories and, and in radio. So, you know, there's, there's such fine lines and such fine margins between what's collected and what's not collected. Right, which it's, it's actually makes you wonder what else could be out there that just hasn't been, you know, like the under the bed story that you described, you know, like what other archives are maybe hidden away under people's beds that we just haven't had access to. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting to think about. Um, also, so I was just thinking in terms of like, I think you referenced the, um, to bring it back to some of the things we were talking about earlier with um, female playwrights. Uh, I think that's one of the great strengths of this book is the, is the way that it um, brings to light a lot of uh, lesser known um, female playwrights and also um, some of their the the works maybe that aren't as um, commonly known as well and then you reference the the way that um, it's not included in the time frame of the study but you you say I think at some stage that the waking the feminist movement which formed in 2016 uh, to protest the male-dominated centenary program at the Abbey Theatre um, can you say a little bit more maybe about how this movement might have influenced the waking the feminist influenced your project and maybe mm -hmm. how you think Irish theater programming might have been might have changed since then or um you know might have I, I suppose that relationship between your book the waking the feminists and then maybe how that's influenced theater programming going forward yeah definitely i mean th that movement um you know it, it was so influential in so many ways and it it definitely influenced the work i suppose i do as a as a scholar trying to research and write these histories and as an archivist collect these histories in the first place and it definitely made me reassess you know, the gender balance of our collections, you know, I mentioned people like Thomas Kilroy and Arthur Shields um, in literature. We have John McGahern's archive. And, you know, I was just looking through the broad spectrum of the collections here and I was thinking, well, it's, you know, it, it, like so much of Irish history, it's so male dominated. And, you know, I, th I definitely think Waking the Feminist was one thing that made me pursue these other hit neglected histories. So, the Carolyn Swift archive is now here. Um, Lilia Doolan's archive is with us as well. Um, Patricia Burke Brogan, playwright again, who did really powerful and, and really, again, brave works. Um, her, her, one of her most well-known plays is called Eclipsed, which challenged the, the court system and, and the, the transfer of women through all these various state channels into Magdalene Laundries. Um, again, her works are here. So things have changed, I think, in terms of the preserved record of Irish theatre and of Irish culture. And I think there's still so much more work to do on that. Um, but it's a start, at least. And, you know, the, the research team around Awakening of Feminists and the Gender Counts report that they published used our collections here um, very much so. And that was really great to see that it's not just about studying the past, that you could see the data that they were collecting being sourced from the archival collections here to influencing really important day-to-day -day matters for working conditions, for living conditions, for uh, women theatre makers. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a really... Um, uh, not just a really important project and, 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 and movement, but it was just great to see the archive supporting that in, in some small way. Yeah, that's really great. And I think that your book also offers a really great um, starting point for any like younger scholars who are looking to maybe explore a lot of this material uh, further. Like I think your book does a great job of offering them different avenues to take in their own research as well. Um, to shift gears a little bit, um, in yeah. chapter three, uh, you talk about, you know, the experimental theater companies that we've, that I think you referenced earlier, like the Globe Theater and the Pike Theater in the 1950s. 
and how influenced they were by um, American culture um, and Irish American culture. And you argue mm-hmm. that it's possible to identify dependence on American culture as a, like a primary medium through which national consciousness and identity was expressed during this period in the 1950s. And you said that this, uh, the dependence was driven by economic and capitalist developments. Uh, so how do you see this relationship between Irish theater and American popular culture, Irish American popular culture developing over time? Do you think Irish theater has become mm-hmm. less dependent on American culture? Um, and how does this dependence influence the way maybe we'd look at some of the archival material? Yeah, yeah, I, it was, I think it was really uh, a big thing for a lot of new Irish playwrights, again, of that generation, especially the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, looking towards America, maybe more so than than England for exposure or for, um, you know, uh, developing their own skill and craft. And, you know, an obvious, an obvious one there, of course, maybe Brian Friel's Philadelphia, Here I Come in 1964, which showed that that longing to leave Ireland, you know, and it's that great cliffhanger at the end of the play, you know, with Gar, public and private and, the split device there of the inner and the public or the private and the public, you know, will I go? And I don't know. I don't know. And, you know, even researching in in Brian Friel's collection at the National Library in Dublin here, um, you know, seeing his manuscript notes for that play and seeing an epilogue actually uh, written in pencil that, yes, it does create this extra scene and the decision is made and Gary is flying to America and he's kind of leaving Ireland behind him and it becomes a classic immigrant story, but perhaps with with a modern twist in that it's not the, the, the impoverished or starving immigrant leaving on a coffin ship or famine ship. This is a new modern immigrant who's leaving out of choice and leaving by airplane, um, you know, a very much, you know, a youth driven movement at the time of immigration. Now, obviously, being forced immigration is still a huge part of it through, through economic reasons and, um, uh, and everything with that. You know, so Philadelphia is, you know, that great touchstone for that particular model. And there were so many other plays that came up as well. Um, the Country Boy was an interesting one in 1959. So just before, a couple of years before Friel's play uh, by John Murphy, a Belfast playwright, who does something very similar. And again, he writes this kind of comedy set on a rural Irish farm of where one son is left behind and he's probably going to inherit the family farm. The other older brother has already gone to America and he comes back um, with his glamorous wife and they're you know, dripping in all the new technologies of, uh, and kind of material gains that his newfound wealth has found uh, or that he's found over in the US. And now this younger son is faced with a similar choice. And, you know, there's a definite influence on Freel. And I've seen it in, in kind of footnotes elsewhere, interviews with Freel or comments that he saw Murphy's play. And, you know, I don't want to overstate that, you know, he, he, he took, the, you know, the whole, Freel took the whole idea from, from John Murphy. But you know, I think he took, he might have been influenced by elements of it for sure. So America and that destination of it as, as being, um, you know, something really significant in terms of internationalizing uh, the craft of Irish, or just the internationalization of Irish culture itself was really significant. Um, you know, he obviously studied it with Tyrone Gosfrey over in the US. Um, yeah, I mean, Irish TV at the time when RT opened in the 1960s, early 60s, um, because there was no tradition of, of, of theater or television production in Ireland. You know, I think, I mean, a rough figure off the top of my head might be something like 70% of programming on RT in its first decade was American imports. You know, and there's so many Westerns and these these programs influencing kind of youth culture at the time. Um, so, yeah, it was really, really uh, influential in terms of Ireland looking towards America. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, in terms of that, it seems like you're... Um, 
in some ways those things like um, the influence of American culture might be something that people are vaguely aware of, but I think what your book does is really um, show just that um, dynamic between the two cultures. And also um, one thing that I think uh, theater and archival memory highlights really well is the challenges, the assumption that I think the 1950s, you know, generally seen as a period of seg stagnation and intellectual repression because of the censorship boards and the church. Um, but you kind of see it as a period of uh, a decade, I guess, of, of cultural transition. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about how uh, viewing this period as one of transition rather than stagnation uh, might alter the way that the plays in this period are viewed in scholarship or might maybe even encourage a more thorough examination of independent mm -hmm. theater groups? Yeah, definitely. I, I really strongly argue that you know, it, yes, of course, the 50s were, you know, um, tainted with, with great immigration and censorship and, and you know, you know, the repression of the, you know, the Catholic theocracy in terms of Catholic power in Ireland at the time. But beneath all that was this great fervor of energy and of new artists emerging. Um, and I've mentioned some of them already, you know, Carolyn Swift and Alan Simpson at the Pike Theatre. Um, you know, perhaps I didn't mention yet Genevieve Lyons and Godfrey Quigley at the Globe Theatre. Um, doing really extraordinary work, you know, bringing in new international plays into Ireland that perhaps would never have been seen elsewhere. And then reading interviews with, with the likes of Thomas Kilroy, again, who emerged, you know, slightly later at that time, but he would have been a young student in the 50s. And he often said that he would have seen more, you would see more international work in Dublin in the 1950s than you'd possibly see today. So it, it was, it, it certainly was an exciting place, but you had to kind of seek it out in some ways. You know, these were, as I said earlier, the fringe venues, those pocket theatres, um, modelled very much in that European theatre, the posh pocket theatre movement of the 1930s, 40s. Um, so there was a, a great deal of experimentation happening. Um, the Pike was very much at the centre of that. Again, doing late night reviews, these follies, as they called them, which were happened late at night, 11pm, midnight. So a very different form of entertainment happening from your traditional three act play happening at seven o'clock in the evening. Um, and maybe just give one or two examples from the Pike is um, these the Caribbean Cayleys and Calypso Cayleys that they staged in the, as part of these late night follies in 1957 and 1958. One was called Follies in the Sun and the other was called Irish Coffee. And they, they brought over into Dublin um, artists who had immigrated from the Caribbean, from places like Trinidad and elsewhere, who came to London via the Windrush immigration scheme and who had come and via that came into Dublin. So there was a whole group of artists and singers and performers of Caribbean roots. Othmer, Remy, Arthur was one. Chloe, Cleo Dupont, Ina Babb, um, very skilled dancers, singers, performers, actors. And at these you know, must have been magic events at the Pike, you know, a small 60 seat venue where you had limbo dancing followed by, you know, sketches, uh, you know, kind of satirizing the Irish immigrants. There was one called the Lament of Inverin, which is, you know, uh, you know, a, par a parish here in Connemara, North Galway, um, you know, two polarized parts of the world. But yet you had the Illin Pipers playing, um, you know, various forms of Irish music with these Caribbean singers and you know, really, really innovative stuff that you wouldn't have seen anywhere else in Ireland at the time. So, I mean, this is all happening in late 50s. So I would definitely see that decade as, as something as a transition rather than definitely not anything as a, as a kind of easy, sentimental period of stagnation. So I think it was far from it. Yeah, that's so interesting that, you know, like the, 
there's so much of this going on, this cult, kind of cultural exchange, but that, you know, the main narrative of Irish theater doesn't necessarily encompass all of that. Um, so I think like one thing that your book also highlights is um, the way that Irish theater is often like a battleground between, you know, caught between Ireland's colonial past and then emphasizing its modernity, but then also trying to preserve a sense of national heritage that's bound up in like conservative forces like the church and the state. Uh, so how do you see the new forms of theater that emerged in the 70s uh, as contending with some of these larger mm. cultural forces? Yeah, there's so much to, to unpack there. Again, looking at new venues that emerged at the time, places like the Project Arts Centre were were you know such it was such a fascinating venue. Um, I mean, slightly different in, in that it was an art centre. I mean, as, as the name suggests, so you had you know emerging rock bands happening, you had film screenings, you had an art gallery, um, as well as a theatre. So it was just this great again centre of energy, creative energy under under one roof in in the centre of Dublin. Um, it would have started in 1966 and came more established as a few years go on and into the 1970s um i mean just to give one example of of a season they produced and i think it was 19, uh, 1970 it was called a new season of irish plays and you know the those years of the project you had jim sheridan you know a famous oscar-winning director of course he was part of it peter sheridan his brother uh, mannix flynn um you know a great you know again a new generation of of, of irish artists and playwrights coming together the um, the new season of Irish plays included work by Mary Manning, by a young playwright called Des Hogan, who put on a work called Squat, which was about um, housing crisis in London and just very much reflecting Ireland's housing crisis as well. Um, and that play went on in, in the early 70s in, in, in Dublin as well. Um, so with censorship and, and I suppose censorship of sex and sexuality was something that was always kind of overhanging Irish culture at the time still. And Project wouldn't escape that either. So as part of that season of new Irish plays, um, you know, there was other, uh, you, know, you know, kind of humorous or skits, kind of sketches happening. One was called Guilty Because We're Filthy. And this is one gap in the archive I haven't been able to, to fill fully in that I've only been able to find scraps of the work. And it was by a playwright called Christy Hudson. Um, but again, it, it prompted letters, flowing letters back and forth to the national press between the actors, between members of the public who were outraged because it depicted scenes of masturbation. It depicted scenes of um, priests and nuns dressed up in burlesque outfits. Um, so you can see, in, you know, at the time of the 1970s, how that would just provoke all sorts of a response. Um, and again, the national media would, would be a vehicle or a medium through which all these letters were, were being played out. But it went straight to Dublin City Council's cultural committee. And um, uh, it was requested that all funding be pulled from projects, not just that play be banned, the whole the whole Project Arts Centre be shut down and have its funding revoked by Dublin City Council. Wow. So it, it was such a you know, uh, not quite a powder keg kind of a time as well, but yet the risk was there. If you censor a play, you shut down the theatre and jobs are lost and creativity is lost. Um, so the, the margins, again, of of work happening and it not happening were, were very, very slim. Right, yeah. It's it's insane to think about that the funding being pulled for something that today would, would not be maybe seen as controversial at all. Um, yeah. And I think the other thing that you highlight really well is the the focus on the, the audience and the theater going public and you write that in this decade uh 
theater going became a kind of political act. So do you think the theater goers during this period perceived the act of going to the theater in this way or viewed themselves at all as politically radical or politically active? Or was this something that, you know, they weren't necessarily aware of? Yeah, I think I think it definitely is, you know, it's, I think it is a political act, you know, regardless, even today, I, I think it still is. But um, something like the Project Arts Centre, again, just even that season in the 1970s, um, you know, those plays that, and even at the Pike Theatre as well, I mean, their their remit, the Pike, obviously, in the 50s, the Abbey was, of course, inactive in its in its base at the Abbey Street following the fire in 51. And it, it had decamped across town to the Queen's Theatre and it was doing, you know, it basically kept the doors open and the lights on by doing, you know, other forms of work. And that's all well covered in, in so many other books and studies. But, um, you know, what the Pike was doing was to, was to not be national. It wasn't trying to replace the Abbey. It was trying to do something else. It was trying to be modern. It was trying to be cosmopolitan and international. So, it, you know, the Pike and the project had no interest in really filling gaps of what they thought maybe the Abbey should be doing in terms of being national. They wanted to do work that they wanted to do as young artists responding to contemporary issues in Ireland, um, you know, be that housing, um, you know, a, a play by the Sheridans was called No Entry, um, and it depicted exactly that, boarded up housing. Same as Des Hogan's play, The Squat, which I mentioned, in, that depicted squatting in London, where many Irish immigrants were at the time. Um, so all these are very contemporary uh, matters. Um, so definitely just so much politics tied up in that. Uh, even in, in terms of new forms of drama happening at this time, uh, in, in, it was 1976, it was a play, the first piece of documentary and um, verbatim theatre that I can find. And I'm pretty confident it's the first piece of, of that kind of form documentary theatre ever in Ireland, or at least at the Abbey, was The Speakers. And it was in 1976, directed by Max Stafford Clark. And it was the first time, the, and this is all in the press reviews at the time, that it was the first time uh, the seating was removed from the Abbey. And it was depicting... Speaker's Corner, which is part of Hyde Park in London. And Speaker's Corner was, again, a, a place of political public meeting place where people from bohemians to drifters to vagrants or anyone was kind of speak, literally up, up on their soapbox and, 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 you know, espousing their own, you know, agendas or beliefs or whatever political events were happening at the time. So this was a play by this or a political piece of political verbatim drama from um, uh, joint stock was a company by Max Stafford Clark. So the speakers happened, and audience members in the press reviews apparently just didn't know what to do. So you, the idea is they would come into the theatre. It was emptied. It was set up like a park where you could walk around and talk to any of the actors who were depicting various people from Hyde Park and interact with them, listen to their their stories, and then people the audience didn't know, quite know what to do with this and. Uh, so people started heckling the actors and the police were called in one night and I think it was the opening night and the, when, when the guards came um, they got, you know, scuffles broke out with these protesters in the audience um, they started challenging the guardie for, um, you know there was, one, one of them was in a, an incident in, in an Irish prison where an IRA political prisoner was um, killed the year before and people took that out on the guards who were coming into the theatre you know so it was this bizarre linking of political events in contemporary Ireland to you know this political promenade piece in the Abbey Theatre so again all of these you know kind of in, you know social incidents in Irish cultural history were being played out on the stage and in new ways at the time so I think the 70s you know is, is another you know fascinating decade that's probably a little bit understudied I think yeah, for sure. And I think the other thing that um, 
your book does really well um touches on you know the theater itself but then and the playwrights but then also um the audience members and the theater going public then you also um as i mentioned earlier like bring it back to often like the archive and national memory and and in the last chapter of your book you express the need for the the irish national archives and national memory to reflect these um diverse and intercultural identities that you've discussed in your book and the necessity of addressing the gaps in history and the intervening in the transparency of the archival record. Uh, so can you say maybe a little bit more about uh, how this kind of archival activism, like what it might look like or how universities or other academic institutions might be able to um, integrate this sure. kind of yeah, activism? Yeah, um, again, it was it was a piece I was thinking about for a while or, and I wrote a piece about earlier on. It was about national archive versus national memory and, you know, most countries, a lot of countries have a national archive and that's fine. And that's, that's they are set up to be the repository of official and government records of, of that country. Um, if, it, you know, how we study our national history, if we only take those official sources, we only get one version of our national history, regardless of where that, what that country is. So I, w- I was coming at it from this point of archival memory and archival um uh, archival memory as opposed to national memory or national archive because if we come at it from the public and the social point of view we get a more holistic account we hear those marginalized voices we recognize them and we can acknowledge or you know absorb them into these wider histories you know even looking at this was another area we're very much connected to here in terms of the archives at NUI Galway is institutional history so along with our, our colleagues in the department of history we're doing an oral history project of the two mother and baby home survivors uh, and that project led by uh, Dr. Sarah Buckley and Dr. John Cunningham in history. Um, you know, we we know all these institutional histories and these endless reports and and commissions of investigation that have been published over the last two decades in Ireland, and they continually tell their store those stories from official sources only. And for all its massive failings, the Mother and Baby Home report published last year. One of the good things it did was for the first time publish the list of archives that the commissioners investigated in compiling that report, and they're all official records. You know, there was a very famous case then in, in the in the aftermath of the publication of that report, where it was revealed that 550 pieces of testimony, oral history testimony recorded from the survivors was deleted deliberately by the commission. So we get a sense of how people's voices and, and victims' voices and marginalised voices are treated by the state. Um, you know, so the state's records will only ever tell the state's version of a history of anything, theatre, culture, anything. Um, you know, so if we, if we want to have an honest dialogue with our own national culture, our own national history, I think we have to have as, as pluralised as plural a voice as possible. Um, so I only hope that other, you know, other institutions might, you know, take on conducting more oral histories or looking for other archives you know, of, of living people as well, that we're not always chasing histories of decades gone by. We can be active now and, and incorporate the voices of activists or of whoever it is into our into our archives now and do it while those people are around and they can tell us their story directly. Yeah, I think that's so important and so great to see that NUIG is, is doing that kind of work um, now. And, and like you said, you know, hopefully other universities um, and institutions will will follow suit and archive. I, th- I think it, there does seem to be some progress being made on this front, but like you said, probably a lot more 
uh, that needs yeah. to be done. Um, so lastly, I won't keep you too much longer, but lastly, uh, just you've, I mean, your book is so rich in um, references and, you know, plays and the history of theater companies, but uh, are there anything, any uh, recommendations um, in terms of plays that you would recommend to anyone who wants to gain a better understanding of Irish mm. theater or maybe any understudied figures whose importance to the history of Irish theater is underestimated? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I could I could list any of the plays that I had the great fortune to, you know, perhaps read for the first time, you know, since I, since they were first produced. You know, Carolyn Swift's The Millstone. I mean, again, this is part of the problem in some ways. There's still archival barriers in that these are unpublished and we absolutely will welcome anyone here to campus doing your anyway Galway who wants to research them. You're absolutely more than welcome. Um, and again, I'm kind of working on ways to digitize as much as possible or publish in some for, you know, formats. A lot of these neglected works, even though we simply can't publish and digitize everything. Um, you know, Carolyn Swift, as much as researching the plays, you know, uh, the people, the lives of these people, the careers are fascinating. You know, Edna O'Brien herself, the biographies of these artists from Lilia Doolin, Carolyn Swift, um, Genevieve Lyons, um, you know, all these great figures who feature in the book, their lives are as important and their life story is as important as the works they contributed to on stage or made happen on stage. And, you know, the more we can write them back into history, uh, I think is a good a good beginning. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a mix of maybe seeking out you know, the, the published works where I know they're probably hard to find in a lot of cases. Um, it might begin at the archive and hopefully can become a more outward process that we keep sharing as much of these, these important records as possible. Great. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Barry. And I think for anyone listening, the one of the ways you could start out with this kind of um, maybe research is, is certainly Barry's book, Theatre and Archival Memory, Irish Drama and Marginalized Histories. It's a fascinating read for anyone who's interested in Irish theatre or Irish history. I think Irish fiction more generally, um, there's really a lot of rich information there. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Barry. Not so, thanks so much, Bridget, and great to talk to you. Yes, thanks so much. Bye.